Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word, uh, both here in the sanctuary and uh, those of you who join us in Knox Hall as well. We're in a series on the Beatitudes of Jesus, and I would like you to hear the Beatitudes read again this morning in their entirety. Uh, Nancy Hearn is our scripture reader today. Nancy is one of the leaders in one of our grief ministries. So let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will show, be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Nancy. Nancy's a volunteer leader and facilitator with New Hope Grief Support. This is a fantastic ministry that helps people with uh, experiencing loss of all kinds. And they hold classes and groups right here in, in our building. And uh, Nancy told me that her involvement with that ministry has changed her life. By a show of hands this morning, how many of you have ever attended a funeral for a hamster? Anybody? Uh, some of you have? I've been to a few of these over the course of my lifetime. Uh, most of them I have officiated. And when, it, when a human being dies, of, of course, the loss is incalculable. Our lives are changed forever. And we usually bring in professionals, a, a pastor, funeral home director, grief support person to walk us through those moments. But for some reason, when a pet dies, people think they can go it alone. Uh, forego the professionals. They become do-it-yourselfers. But if you've ever planned a funeral for a hamster, you know this is more difficult than it sounds. If, if a dog uh, passes away, this is different. I, I'm told that a dog is like a member of the family, and when a dog passes, everybody in the family mourns. Uh, we don't have a dog. Uh, we, we've had a, a long series of what I call dog avoidance pets. We've had hamsters and gerbils and guinea pigs and fish. And when a hamster dies, uh, not everybody in the family feels the loss equally. When my kids were young and we're having a funeral in the backyard and my kids are crying because a pet has passed away, I, I was always tempted to try to comfort them with some realism. Uh, you know, he was just a rodent. Uh, you know, the life expectancy of a hamster is only two years. Nobody should really be surprised. Uh, but I doubt my kids would have been comforted with those words. 
Uh, some parents, in an effort to shield their kids from pain and grief, have flat out lied to them. Uh, I have a friend who told me that he came home from school one day when he was a kid, and their, his parents told him that their dog, Barkley, had moved to a farm and was even right now enjoying the wide open spaces. Uh, why Barkley had to move so suddenly and without saying goodbye was never explained. And then with small pets, some parents have gone as far as to replace a deceased pet with a identical-looking substitute live pet and hoping the child won't notice. Some of you have done this. Uh, my father did this when we were young, and his gamble paid off. Uh, my powers of observation are remarkably low, and I didn't have a clue, and I found out the story when I was 40 years old. Uh, my sister, my twin sister, who's five minutes older and way more astute, uh, did notice some of the differences. Uh, Gomer looks heavier, she said. And Dad said he's put on a little weight, nothing to worry about. And Gomer is a different color. Uh, animals can, can change colors, not unheard of in the animal kingdom. And Gomer has become a gerbil, she said. Uh, and my dad was like, you mean those aren't the same thing? Uh, parents will tell their kids lies. They are lies offered in love to protect, to shield kids from pain and grief. But maybe by sparing them grief, we are also sparing them a form of blessing. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So we gathered in the backyard, in a section of our yard often used for pet funerals, and we offered words. Cody was a good hamster. He always made me smile. And our daughter, five years old at the time, just bursts into tears. And then I start to cry, and then we all, we all start to cry. Understand, I care nothing for this hamster. Um, honestly, we never really got along. But her heart, this little girl who has my heart, this little girl who means the world to me, her heart is devastated. Right? That's why we're doing this. That's why we're standing outside in January. That's why I've had to break through frozen ground with a pickaxe. That's why I wrote a really nice eulogy. That's why I'm at a hamster funeral with tears streaming down my face. Blessed are those who mourn, for grief is the price tag of love. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will know the whole depth of the human experience. Blessed are those who mourn, for when they stand in a circle of family and friends, and when they grieve not only their own loss, but they feel the pain of one another, they will know a unique and comforting bond. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will receive the comfort of the Father who loves his kids and who is close to the brokenhearted. All the Beatitudes we're going to look at are both counterintuitive and countercultural. They are counterintuitive in that they run against the way we usually think, and they're countercultural in that they run against the grain of our societal norms. And of all the Beatitudes, there is none more counterintuitive and countercultural than this one. Blessed are those who mourn. It's counterintuitive. It makes no sense at all. It's like saying, happy are the unhappy. 
And it's countercultural because our culture does not want to think this way. We prefer to celebrate. Uh, we prefer to look on the bright side. Right? We, we, we don't call it uh, death insurance. We call it life insurance. What do you have to do to claim it? Die. We don't even call them funerals anymore. We call it a celebration of life. Now, I get it. Death is not the end for the Christian, and the kingdom that Jesus invites us into has no end, and we can celebrate the future destiny of our loved one. We can celebrate all that, uh, that, that they meant to us in this life. Uh, we can celebrate. Uh, that's fine. Unless what we're really doing is avoiding the painful, necessary, and healing aspects of grief. Experts in grief, like those at New Hope Center for Grief Support, say that grief is natural and necessary. You can't skip it. People come to New Hope when they're experiencing a recent loss. Some people are at New Hope for a loss they experienced 20 years ago. You can deal with it now, or you can deal with it later, but at some point you will have to process your grief. You can't skip it, and you can't skim over it. It is not healthy. To mourn is to feel and express grief over a loss. Usually it's the loss of a person through death or divorce or rebellion, but it can also be the loss of a friendship or of a relationship or of your health or of a season of life. When we mourn something, we, we, we don't just feel it, we express it. We tell the world and ourselves that we will never be the same. The Jewish custom of sitting Shiva is an example of what it means to really mourn. Traditionally, when a close relative dies in a Jewish family, relatives come to the house and they sit Shiva for 10 days. They come and they actually sit on the floor or they sit on low benches to show that they have been brought low by the loss. They will sometimes tear their outer garments to show that the fabric of their lives has been rent. They sit Shiva not to minimize grief, but rather to intensify it, to grieve deeply and to grieve together. We, we do not do this in our culture. We think people should get over it and move on quickly. We read books with titles like 10 Days to Happiness. Right? We don't sell books about 97 pain-filled steps to a whole life. We don't read books about how to grieve more deeply than ever before. We want a quick road to happiness. When Jesus referred to those who mourn, he was certainly thinking of people who had lost loved ones or homes or jobs. Those losses were certainly represented in the crowd on the mountain that day. But just the way poor in spirit looks beyond financial loss, so those who mourn look beyond physical losses. Jesus is including spiritual losses as well. The loss of innocence, the loss of faith, the loss of hope. And ultimately, the mourning that Jesus is speaking about includes mourning over our own sin. He's talking about the kind of mourning that's described in Psalm 119, where it says, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. That's a whole other kind of mourning. The Bible describes Jesus as a man of sorrows, 
well acquainted with grief. How do we know that about Jesus? Where, where did Jesus mourn? Well, we know of at least two circumstances that are recorded in the Bible. And the first one uh, is, it was at the graveside of Lazarus, recorded in John chapter 11. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus was very ill. But by the time Jesus made it to their home, Lazarus had already died. And that's where we pick up the story in John chapter 11, verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus wept. It is the shortest verse in the Bible. It's the most favorite one for children to memorize in Sunday school. And it is the most revealing. Jesus knows what it is to mourn. Jesus knows what it's like to experience loss. And it was more than just a lump in his throat the Bible says he was so moved in spirit and he was so troubled and his grief was so pronounced that people could see it in his face. They could read it in his body. Now, why did Jesus cry, we might ask? If you know the story, and Jesus knows that he's going to bring Lazarus back to life in just a minute, they're going to have Lazarus back in just a matter of moments, so why did Jesus weep? Maybe he was weeping for the death of his friend Lazarus. Maybe he was weeping because he knew that Lazarus would have to die again someday. This healing is only temporary. Someday Lazarus is going to go, here we go again. Maybe he was grieving over the loss of lack of faith in the crowd from people that thought Jesus couldn't do anything about this. Maybe he was grieving for the hypocrisy and the hostility in the crowd from people that were already plotting the demise of Jesus. Everything wrong with the world was on display outside that tomb at Bethany. Sickness, loss, hatred, unbelief, and it broke Jesus' heart because this was not God's plan for the human race. And so he wept. The second time that Jesus wept is recorded in Luke 19. It's the very first Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry into the holy city, and as Jesus rounds the corner, and people are cheering and shouting his name, and it's going wonderful, and as he rounds the corner, and he sees the city from the mountainside, this is what we read in Luke 19, 41. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he did what? He wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And then he forecasts the destruction of Jerusalem. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. We know from history this is exactly what happened. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You know, here, here it is, one of the best days on the Jesus tour there's a parade, everybody's happy, but Jesus sees inside the human heart. And he sees inside the heart 
of the religious leaders and the heart of the political leaders, and he knows how this is going to unfold in the days ahead. He knows that inside that cheering crowd are people who in a few days will be shouting for his crucifixion. It broke his heart. The city could have known peace. The people could have known joy. The nation could have welcomed their long-awaited Messiah, but Jesus knew that in a matter of days they would reject him and bring disaster on themselves and on their children. It was a tragedy, and Jesus wept. Do you ever weep over your city? Do you ever weep over the lostness and brokenness that you see around you? Do you ever watch the news and find yourself crying? I, I, I'm finding that as I age, I cry more. Has anybody experienced that? Some heads nodding. Uh, I, things that didn't used to make me cry. Tender commercials and YouTube videos and I find myself crying. I'm hoping it's a sign of maturity and not senility. It's quite possible that following Jesus will actually make you weep more. John Stott calls these Christian tears. I think I've got a long way to go in learning how to weep properly. Becoming more like Jesus, I think, will involve more tears. Make no mistake, the life that Jesus invites us into is ultimately a life of joy. But if we're following Jesus properly, the things that broke his heart will break our heart. The things that made Jesus weep will cause our eyes to well up with tears. It's not just what's wrong with the world that breaks our heart. It's what's wrong with us. We twist the truth. We say harmful things. We commit adultery in our hearts. We lose our tempers and look down our noses. We spread gossip. We wallow in envy. We do these things knowing that they're wrong, knowing that people are going to get hurt, and we do things that fall short of all the good things that God created us to be and do. One author I was reading this week says there's a big difference between a mistake and a sin. We prefer to call them mistakes. There's a big difference, he says, between a mistake and a sin. A mistake is a miscalculation. It's a goof-up. It's an error. And you regret a mistake. You apologize for a mistake. You may even try to make amends for a mistake. But you do not mourn a mistake. What you and I mourn is our sin. A, a willful character flaw that always takes us down the wrong path that leads to our harm and the harm of others we were made to be generous and yet we tend toward greed we were designed to treasure our sexuality and yet we trash it we were wired to worship god and instead we worship achievement we're not just mistakers we are sinners and to mourn is to face the truth about ourselves and our world. And the truth is that we are messed up people living in a messed up world. Anybody feeling blessed right now? Where's that blessing stuff come in? Right? Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Where, where, where's that blessing come in? Uh, why is it blessed to mourn? Because the gospel begins with heartache. Where does the comfort come from? How does mourning lead to comfort? Well, first of all, mourning gives us solidarity with Jesus. 
or as Paul says, it enables us to share in the fellowship of the sufferings of our Lord. Mourning calls us to deeper community with others because mourning is meant to be done in community, which is why it feels so right to gather together in a funeral home and a church after there's a loss of a loved one. Mourning enlarges our souls, positioning us to be comforters and counselors to others who are experiencing loss. Mourning leads to repentance and forgiveness. Right? If you're a mistaker, all you have to do is try harder. But if you're a sinner, all you can do is repent. And the Bible says it is godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And lastly, mourning points us to the resurrection of Jesus, the deposit or the down payment of our Savior, guaranteeing that we, along with all creation, will one day be made new in glory and there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more tears. The tear-shedding God who wept over Jerusalem is also the tear-wiping God who will receive us in glory. And there, as C.S. Lewis has said, our sorrows will work backwards and turn even our agony into glory. So thanks be to God that in Jesus, our best days are always in front of us and never behind us. We come now to the Lord's table, to communion, to the Eucharist, and this is a very good time and place to mourn for a while. Not for long, we know that resurrection is coming. We know that victory is coming. But in communion, we take bread and cup, and we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, and we remember all the grief that surrounded that day. It's a very good time and place to mourn over our sin as we remember that it really was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. We remember and we repent of that as Jesus invites us to come. Would you bow your heads now? I want to invite you to a time of mourning. With heads bowed and eyes closed, take a moment and imagine the scene of the crucifixion. Jesus is on the cross, bleeding and in pain. His mother, Mary, watches and weeps. Imagine the grief of those that were there. Imagine the searing loss of God the Father and of God the Son who knew the pain of separation. Mourn with them a moment. Feel their loss. Imagine the sheer weight of human sin that was placed upon Jesus. And give thanks for the sacrifice willingly offered for you. Take a moment to mourn over your own sin. Call it what it is. Ask God to forgive you. Ask God to forgive you the times you've let yourself off the hook too easily by saying things like, well, nobody's perfect and everybody makes mistakes. Both very true, but we have used these as excuses. We've used them to avoid owning the truth about ourselves 
the truth about what we've done. Own the truth today. Confess it. Seek forgiveness. Lastly, let us mourn for one another. There are people in this room right now who are grieving the loss of a spouse. There are people with us right this morning grieving the loss of a child. There are people today who have been devastated this week by a bad medical report, and they're right here in our family. There are those who are under attack in the workplace. There are people right here who know the pain of a failed marriage. Take a moment now to mourn with those who mourn, to feel and acknowledge their pain, and to pray for them. Father, we are sinners, and yet you have invited us to your table. You have invited us into your family. You have given to us your very best. You paid the price for our sins and have made us clean. While we are tempted to pray for a grief-free life, we will pray instead for a Jesus-filled life. We will accept whatever sorrow or joy may come our way for the sake of the gospel, knowing that you have our best interest at heart. As we take once more the bread and the cup, remind us of your loving sacrifice. Remind us to whom we belong. Remind us of the resurrection power that is ours. And fill us with the hope of the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everybody said,